Open your Bibles to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Page 1050, if you're using a Bible provided. Last week we saw Jesus Christ enter Jerusalem in triumph. Humble, lowly, seated on the colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm not quite sure that that is what I pictured of a triumphal entry of a victorious king. We talked about that last week. But now that the king has entered the capital city, this conquering king has entered, where will he go? What's next on his agenda? Where does the crowd think he will go? Where do they expect this king to go? What do they expect this king to do? What do we expect and why? So as we dig into the word of God this morning, let's pray together. Father, we need you to help us to understand what is clear and plain and what is not so clear and plain, what is uh, right there on the surface, but also the underlying currents of what you are trying to communicate in your word to us today. And we cannot do that without you. We are fully and utterly dependent upon your spirit to work through your word in your people, all for your glory. So we give ourselves to you and ask you to do that this morning in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, I'll read through verse 17. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have preferred, prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is God's divine word, his revelation to us this morning. May we listen to it. Our theme is this, the king purifies the temple. And I would I say, begins to purify the temple, uh, comes in and addresses the problems of the temple. And he does that for the purpose of demonstrating the priority of worship. Demonstrating the priority of worship in his kingdom, in his ways, in his plans. So what is the king doing and why is he doing it? As he purifies the temple, he's demonstrating the priority of worship. I've mentioned it already this morning. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem. He has been hailed and praised as the Messiah. Specifically, they cried out, the son of David. He has been recognized by these crowds, mostly from Galilee as they entered Jerusalem at the Passover time. He has been recognized as the Messiah, as the Savior of his people. And they cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The one who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, is the Savior come to save his people. He's going to rescue them. 
He's going to deliver them. And they have thrown their cloaks on the road so he can ride over them in submission to his lordship, in submission to his kingship. They are ready for deliverance. It's exciting. Great things are going to happen. What's next? John MacArthur says this, if Jesus had been the military Messiah the people wanted, he would have brought an army into Jerusalem and attacked the main Roman garrison at Fort Antonius. Instead, alone and weaponless, he attacked a group of his fellow countrymen who were profaning the temple. So immediately I'm drawing attention to the fact that something is off with what happens here. And as Christians who are familiar with the scripture, we so often miss some of these underlying and overarching themes of what's taking place in especially the narrative. Because we, we kind of see everything through that Bible uh, that Bible story lens, that Sunday school lens where you come as a child and they put the flannel graph up and they had the little people and they would tell you the stories and you learned all these stories, but you did not necessarily connect the themes of what's really going on. And this is a challenge for me. I grew up in the, that same way. It's a challenge for me to, to see the bigger picture. And, and I'm not blaming anybody for us missing the bigger picture. Uh, maybe my dad preached the bigger picture and I missed it. But I'm just going through what I understand, even going through Bible college, even having all this time, I wrestle with the text. And so today we're going to kind of do some wrestling together. And I, I don't say I have all the answers, but I want to challenge maybe some of the ways we think about things as we seek to understand what is happening. Then, of course, what the application is to us. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, in the parallel passage of what takes place after the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem... Mark makes it clear in his timeline that what we are reading about today took place the next day. So I'm not trying to, to do anything. I'm not going to necessarily always talk about the differences in the Gospels, but this is the next day. But Matthew puts it immediately here. Now, he doesn't say immediately, so it's, he's not trying to hide anything either. But Matthew is dealing with things more thematically than chronologically. And so immediately, the conquering king goes right to work. And where does he go? Right to the temple. What is Matthew trying to show us and teach us in this account? Now remember, what did the people expect him to do? They wanted salvation from civil oppression. But this is very important. They wanted it apart from salvation from spiritual oppression. They wanted salvation or release from civil oppression. The Romans are bearing down on them, and they wanted that liberation. But they wanted it apart from liberation from spiritual oppression. They wanted a great ruler, but they did not want a great savior from sin. They wanted to continue to live in rebellion against God spiritually and yet be saved by him civilly in, in society. They wanted the societal blessings without submission to the Lord God Almighty. They, as a people, especially their leaders, had already rejected the Lord God Almighty. They've already rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've already profaned the temple in their worship. They have already killed the prophets. And yet they want to say, hey, we're still sons of Abraham. If the prophets came today, we'd worship him. And Jesus continues to say to them, especially the leaders, no, if the prophets were here today, you'd be the ones killing them. You are the sons of the murderers of the prophets. And the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ, is here. What are they going to do to him? Anybody know the outcome of that story? Well, if the prophets were here, we would obey, we would repent, we would turn. They went out to John the Baptist in the wilderness, didn't they? 
And what did John the Baptist say to them? Welcome to the, you know, welcome to the revival. That's what he said. And he said, you brood of vipers. I say, well, John's a little heavy-handed on the criticism. Well, wait till we get to Matthew 23 and see what Jesus says to these same men, these same rulers. So in light of this, notice what is going on, what's wrong in Jerusalem, what's wrong with God's people, what's wrong with Israel as the covenant people of God and their response and what Jesus does. Now, as the king enters Jerusalem, as the Messiah is there, they got that part right. They had to realize what we must realize is that you will never have a civil change, societal transformation apart from spiritual revival. We and they will never be saved from the social and civil consequences of sin until we're saved from the spiritual consequences of sin. So the effects of sin will never be dealt with. The effects in our uh, government, the effects in our society, the, the effects in all those things that we think of as outside the church in one sense, will never have deliverance from those until sin has been defeated at its root, at its core. God's covenant people needed to be judged for their rejection and rebellion against God. Before anything else is going to take place, that must happen. Understand this. True worship, true religion had to be restored. But before we can restore what is true and good, what is sinful and wrong, the rebellion and rejection must be judged. I asked a question last week. Did he enter, did Jesus enter Jerusalem in victory, ready to take the throne, or in judgment? Did he enter as a conquering king civilly or spiritually? And so there's all these themes kind of wrestling. And so I'm asking you to, to wrestle with me. That's what this means. And I wish it was more clear in my own head. And so the old saying is if there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. So I'm trying to stay away from the mist so I don't create a fog. But I do want you to think about these things, to wrestle with these things, and for us as a church to wrestle with them together. So let's dig into the text, see what it says. First of all, the king enters his house, and the king's house is the temple. The king enters his house, the temple, and immediately, what does he do? He enters the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so Jesus here purifies the temple in the sense of he begins the purification process. This doesn't take care of the entire problem. It's not like after he did this, the temple is pure. But there's a purification process taking place. Notice he doesn't go after the civil authority of Rome. He goes after the corrupt Jewish religious system. The people thought that the chains of Rome were their greatest slavery, but the chains of sin demonstrated in the perversion of their worship was their greatest slavery. They were chained in sin. They had perverted the worship of the one true God. They had profaned the temple, and they were fine with it. So where does the conquering king go? He goes to the temple and he goes there in judgment to restore what is most important to the people, the true worship of the one true God. Now, when you, you see this scene and try to use your sanctified imagination to see what's going on here. So he drove out all. Now, notice that there is a complete work here who sold and bought in the temple. And I guess 
I don't know, sometimes you just don't think through what this means because here is one man driving out all of these people, dumping the tables, getting them. How many people were there buying and selling? How many booths were there? Sometimes you're like, well, there's like one or two people, two or three things going on. This is a huge, I, this is a huge complex, as well as there are tens of thousands of people coming to the temple at this time for worship, for the Passover. This is prime money-making time. So it doesn't say how many, but we get this picture of just a couple, like Jesus has taken on three or four or five, maybe 15 people. I would say dozens, easily. And so how does one man drive them all out? I mean, just think about going someplace where there's a lot of corruption going on, and so you decide to go in there and clean up the place. You know, there's a lot of movies made like this, at least back in the day, you know. Clint Eastwood, Dirty Harry, John Wayne, you know, going to town, you know. You know just one man alone, defeating all the enemies. And you watch those, and it's really inspiring, but at the same time, you realize, eh, it's probably not very realistic. But here, here it does happen. How does that happen? It happens because in this moment, Jesus is demonstrating divine power. What kind of authority, what kind of power does the Son of God have when he just looks you in the face, when he tells you to leave, when he tells you to get out? When he tells you to take your stuff and go? I don't know. This is how it happens. Now, the question that comes in these moments as he's purifying the temple is what are they doing wrong? And this is very important to our understanding of what's taking place in the text. So what is going wrong or what is happening that is wrong that Jesus is dealing with? What we must see is that the purpose of the temple has been hijacked. The purpose of the temple has been hijacked. It was to be, it was meant to be a place of worship. It was meant to be a place of witness. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, 7 says this. These I will bring to my holy mountain, the holy mountain of Jerusalem, the holy mountain where God's temple is. And I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. What's the house of prayer? The temple. I'm going to bring all of these people to my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. This is the purpose. It's a house of prayer. It's a house of worship. It's a house of sacrifice. But it's not only that. It's a house of prayer for all peoples. Not just the Jewish people. So it's a place of worship and it's a place of witness. Where all the nations are streaming to Jerusalem. But what have they done with the temple? What have the religious leaders and rulers done with the temple? They have corrupted it. They've turned it into a den, a cave of robbers. I, I, I did a lot of research, and you can find some of the same research, but I, I like how John MacArthur explains what it looked like. He says this, the business enterprises in the court of the Gentiles. So as you enter into the, the gates of the temple mound, mount, the temple complex, you enter, first of all, the court of the Gentiles. Who goes into the court of the Gentiles? Any guess? It's in the name, the Gentiles. The Gentiles can go in here. Who gets to go into the inner court? Only the Jews. That's why 
Paul got arrested and Timothy got arrested because they thought he was bringing an uncircumcised Gentile into the inner court. And so there was an inner court. So the Gentiles, why are the Gentiles allowed into the temple complex? Witness, it's a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, only God's covenant people can enter into the inner sanctum, into the, the, the temple itself. But this is a place of worship. So in this outer court, it came to be known as the Bazaar of Annas. You know what a bazaar is, right? You know who Annas is? He's one of the great high priests. This is Annas's bazaar. This is Annas's place of business. This is the court of the Gentiles. Wait a second, what's going on here? And in this bazaar, these chief priests and other associates oversaw the temple franchises. Oh, we know what a franchise is. So we got Walmart, we've got Meyer, we've got Kroger, all taking place in there. <laughs> so merchants would buy rights to a concession for selling sacrificial animals, wine, oil, or salt, or for exchanging money into the proper currency and denominations used in temple offerings. So see how we're, it's talking about what's in this passage. So in addition to the franchise, franchise fees, the operators would often be required to pay a certain percentage of the profits to Annas, the high priest. So if you want the privilege of buying, of selling in the court of the Gentiles, you had to pay a fee, a franchise fee. Who'd you pay that to? The religious rulers, the high priests, Annas being the chief priest. And then you would, on top of that, you would give a cut of what you made to the high priest. So what's going on here? We have these franchises. We have all of these things taking place. Now notice how this racket works. Only animals approved by the priest could be offered in the temple. So if you wanted a lamb or you wanted a dove, we saw that here, the pigeons. If you wanted one that was acceptable to be offered when you came to the temple, who has to approve that? The high priests, what do they approve? They approve only those animals sold by their people. A little mark, a little notch, whatever it takes. So here we are, we're upping the price of what needs to be sacrificed. We're getting a cut of the, of the profits. What has the worship of God's people turned into? Exactly what most of the world thinks about what's taking place in this building here today. What's it about? It's about pastors getting wealthy. Church is always out for your money. You know, the biggest frauds, the biggest, biggest crooks are those people who are always asking you to give to their project, to, to sell this, to hawk that. Just go on TV. Can you not find the religious stations of people who are selling all kinds of religious goods to do all kinds of religious things for you? Is that taking place today in certain places? Is there a reason that reputation has it been well-earned? Well, it goes back far beyond America. It goes back 2000. It goes back before that. This is what is taking place. It's corrupt. People are getting rich off of religion. But that's not true religion. And so the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are the people in on the, the take. They're the ones who are, who are doing all of these things. Notice who Jesus is going to confront in these passages coming. Those people, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's coming after those people who have corrupted what God has given. So if you say that, the first place Jesus heads is to the center of religious corruption where all the people on the TV are promoting their religious wares and getting rich off the poor saps who are sending the money in for the prayer shawls and the little gold dust and all those things. 
flying around in their airplanes and their jets and their big houses. That's what he's coming after. He's going right to the center of that. Now, what's going to happen and what he's going to talk about as we go further through Matthew is that there would be a final purification of the temple. Now, you might not understand what that looks like, but if you know anything about history, A.D. 70 should ring a bell. A.D. 70 is the final purification of the temple. What is that? We'll talk more about it. Let's leave you hanging. Do some research. So this is what Jesus does. Now, in doing this, what does he demonstrate? Letter B, he demonstrates divine authority. He demonstrates his divine authority. This is an attack on those who had the authority to approve what Jesus is disapproving of. So he attacks the authorities, the religious authorities, and they've approved what Jesus says should not have been approved. It's not like they couldn't have done this. The, the, the point is sometimes you get caught up in the fact of, well, people would need sacrifices and they would need to exchange some of their money. Do that outside the temple. Do it without the racket. Do it without the payoffs. There's a way of, of doing the things that needed to be done without all of that. But notice he's not only challenging the authorities, he is disrupting the entire system that was in place. He is disrupting the entire system in place. Who is Jesus to challenge the religious rulers? Who is he? He's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Who gets to tell these people what to do? God does. This is God in the flesh. This is Jesus Christ. He is claiming that he is greater than not just the religious rulers, than the, te than the temple itself. Back to Matthew chapter 12, verses 5 to 6. When he healed in the temple on the Sabbath and all of these things, what did he say? He said, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What's the something greater than the temple? Jesus is here. The temple made without hands is here. So there's something greater than the temple. And so he's not just greater than the authorities. He's greater than the temple itself. And what this leads to just later in this very chapter, look at verse 23, looking ahead. We see the chief priests and the elders of the people coming up to him and saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? There's going to be a conflict of authority. And Jesus is doing what when he entered Jerusalem the way he did? When he goes to the temple and does what he does? He is instigating that conflict of authority. He's instigating the fight because he's got a purpose for what he's doing. So here Jesus makes a direct assault on authority of the Jewish religious rulers. And a direct assault more so on the entire Jewish religious system. That's what we have to see. He does one other thing. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So Jesus again, even in this moment, demonstrates divine power through physical healing. He has divine power. He's cast out all of those corrupt people selling and buying. And he shows divine power and healing. So even in the last week of his life, even as he is nearing the end of his mission, we sang it. On the road to Calvary. He's on the road to Calvary. He's in his last week. Even then, in his mercy, in his compassion, in his kindness, he takes time to care for the hurting. Now, it all plays into the whole aspect of what he's trying to do in challenging the system and challenging the, the, the authority of that corrupt system. 
But don't forget and don't miss it. In his power, in his might, he heals all the blind and lame who came to him. Can you imagine? It's just, it's so quick and, and, and it's not the main point. But it is fascinating and reminder of how great he is. I mean, as you guys came in today, I talked to some of you. And there are, there are aches and pains. There are hurts. There are debilitating things going on. There are people who aren't here because of these very physical issues. Can you imagine coming to church today and Jesus is in the foyer? With a word, with a touch, with a look. We all come out of here 100%. I know some of you are like, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine being 100%. I'd be happy to be 30%. So it was happening Don't miss who Jesus Christ is. Then what else takes place? Number two, the king welcomes the praise of the children. He welcomes the praise of the children. So all of this is taking place, demonstrating his divine power, divine authorities. He's cleared out all of those who bought and sold. He's healing all the blind and lame that are coming to him. And what happens then? The children are doing something. The children are crying out of the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. So when the chief priests and the scribes noticed the group who saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out of the temple, what are they? The religious rulers are indignant. What's that mean, indignant? It means they were incensed. They are ticked off. They are torqued. I mean, there's a different word you could use. That's just a few words I use. They are extremely upset. And there are two things that are bothering them. What's bothering them, first of all, are the wonderful things he did. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine seeing people healed and being upset about it? I can't believe all these people who are sick and lame and blind are being made well. I'm so upset about it. But that's what happens When true religion and true worship given by God is corrupted, so corrupted that the people in charge especially see the very wonderful works of God and are upset about it. So when God is doing wonderful things, who are the people that are upset? They are the enemies of God. Notice that. But they're upset about a second thing, the more important thing. They are upset about what the children are crying out. The children are shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Remember, that's what was shouted just the day before as Jesus entered Jerusalem. He is Messiah. They continue to shout praise to the Messiah. Save us, Messiah. That's what they're shouting. So why aren't the religious rulers rejoicing? Why haven't they joined with the children in praising Jesus Christ? Why aren't they worshiping him? Because they have rejected the Messiah. They rejected him all the way back, Matthew 12. They rejected him for over a year now. They don't want anything to do with him. So my question for you this morning is, what about you? Who who do you believe Jesus is? And what is your response to Jesus? Have you rejected him as Savior and Lord, as King of kings and Lord of lords, have you rejected him or have you received him? Have you repented and believed in him? Or have you said, no thanks, I don't want that. 
Remember, they wanted a civil ruler. They didn't want a spiritual savior. They didn't want release from their sins. They wanted to continue sinning while not having the oppression of those above them. And that's so much of what happens with people who reject Christ. If I trust in Jesus Christ, if I repent of my sins, I first of all have to acknowledge that what I've been doing is sin, that I am a sinner. But then I have to submit to the Lordship of Christ in my life, not only for him to save me from the penalty of my sin, but to save me from the power of my sin, to save me from the chains of sin, to set me free to live a righteous life. And I don't want to give up my chains. I don't want to give up my slavery to sin. I like being a sinner. I like at least the fun or the freedom. I don't like the consequences. So God saved me from that. But I don't want to be set free from sin itself. So we reject the Messiah because we love our rebellion. We love our sin. We reject Christ because we want no part in someone who tells us what to do. And this is the same thing for the religious rulers. This is what they've done. So in their indignation, what do they say to Jesus? Do you hear what these children are saying? What's the answer? Of course he does. So what are they saying? When they ask the question, you know these kind of questions, don't you? This is a question that is assuming a reaction or a response. They are asking him why he's allowing them to say that. Because if Jesus heard them, surely he would have stopped them. Why? Because they're calling him the Messiah. They're calling him the king. And if he's not the king, surely he would set them straight. Do you hear what the children are saying? And so this is the problem. This is what is really bothering them. This is why they are so indignant. They cannot allow Jesus to be praised as the Messiah. They must stop the children. They must stop him. This is too much. It's gone too far. And it was one thing for this to be taking place in Galilee or in Samaria or on the other side of the Jordan. But now where's this taking place? In Jerusalem. Oh, but not just Jerusalem. Where's it taking place? In the temple. All of their authority, all of their power, all of their corruption, all of the scan, all of that is being attacked at the very root, at its very core. It's right in their face, and they have got to stop it. It's gone far too far. Back in Matthew 12, verse 14, it says, At that point, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him, destroy his reputation, to challenge him. But if they couldn't do that, if they couldn't destroy him as a, as a teacher, as a prophet, they would have to destroy him physically. And so pay attention. We know what's coming. What's Jesus' response to the Pharisees? To these chief priests and these scribes? What's his response? Jesus said to them, yes. Yes, have you never read? Jesus claims here to deserve praise reserved for God. Jesus claims to deserve praise reserved for God. Yes, I hear them. And his response to that challenge is, have you never read? <laughs> have you never read? Have you never read Psalm 8? I mean, don't you guys know Psalm 8? What's the answer? Of course they've read Psalm 8. Most of these guys probably have Psalm 8 memorized. It's a nice short one. You can memorize it. And in Psalm 8, verse 2, it says this, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Jesus quotes that from the Septuagint. He quotes it from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the word is there is praise instead of strength. Same idea. 
Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared strength. You have prepared praise. What is Jesus claiming? He's saying, you know the Bible, but you don't understand the significance. You don't understand the meaning. You don't understand that it's being fulfilled right in front of you. Because these babies and these nursing infants in Psalm 8 are praising someone specific. Who are they praising? They're, they're praising the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D. They're praising Yahweh. They're praising the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so Jesus is saying, have you not read that children are going to praise Yahweh? What does that have to do with the question? He's saying that is happening right here. They are praising Yahweh. They are praising the Lord. They are praising God. This is the fulfillment of that. Why are you so upset? So Jesus, now notice this very carefully. Jesus, Jesus is accepting worship reserved for Yahweh alone. He's not just being praised as a Jewish savior, a Jewish king, a Jewish rescuer. He is saying he deserves Yahweh's praise. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you think what Jesus has done in the past has been pretty uh, troubling for these people, you, you really can't get worse than this. So later on, in case you don't know the rest of the story, when they crucified Jesus, what are they going to accuse him of? Blasphemy. Are they correct in their accusation? Did Jesus claim to be God? Absolutely. Should he have been killed for blasphemy? Absolutely not. Why not? Because he is God. <clears throat> Excuse me for that one there. I'm just hitting puberty. <laughs> he is God. Should probably take a drink. Went down those vocal cords. So as he accepts their worship, he is turning the tables on the authorities and saying, I am God. I am here. I am in charge. I am the authority. So this is what takes place. Instead of attacking Rome, Jesus attacked Judaism. Instead of clearing out the enemy without, the Romans, he cleaned out the enemy within. And that's from John MacArthur again. So the first thing he does as he enters Jerusalem is he attacks this false worship of a false god and the upturning of true religion. And he's going to clear out Judaism. He's going to put a stake in Judaism as a false religion. Not the old covenant teachings that were absolutely true religion, but all of the ways that have been profaned and, and destroyed and upset. Now, what some will say at this point, is that some will say is that this is all Christ came to do in his first coming. All Christ came to do was to destroy false religion, to attack Judaism and any other false gods and false religions. He came to die on the cross to save his people from their sins. He did not come to upset anything civilly. He didn't come to attack civil government. Notice what he did. I've made it, I've said it repeatedly. And therefore, Jesus Christ wasn't worried about Rome. He wasn't worried about the oppression of Rome. He wasn't worried about all the economic issues and all the slavery issues. He wasn't worried about all the governmental issues. He was here simply, solely for religion. There'll be a day coming when he returns again, when he deals with governments. But now, he just deals with religion. I don't agree with that take. I believe it's 
halfway true in the sense that at this point, it's absolutely true. What he's doing is absolutely that. But do not fail to see that religion, I'm using that word very broadly, has implications for all of society, for good or for bad. You cannot separate religion from all these other things. So if Jesus comes and resets and reorients the religious core, the center of Judaism, and shows that it's Christianity where the Messiah has come and died for sin and saved people, that that will have implications and outworkings through all of society, all the way to the civil government. And if you know your history, you know that Rome didn't have a problem with Jesus. Because Rome didn't have a problem with Judaism. Why not? Because Judaism had caved to Rome. They worked within the Roman system. They weren't a threat to Rome. In fact, they were the ones tamping down those zealots. Were the Pharisees and Sadducees trying to, 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 to lead a rebellion against Rome? No. The religious system was working with Rome. So they allowed Judaism to continue. They allowed the temple worship. They allowed all of those things until the zealots come in and lead a rebellion that's going to lead to an idea that Rome has to crush Israel, 80-70. But it's not led by the religious people. So this religious sect of Christianity, as it was connected to Judaism, was seen by the Roman government as just another section of Judaism. So under that protection, the gospel spread from 33 AD to 70 AD with really very little, well, in the 60s, I should say that, about 64 AD. It spread for about 30 years with no real fight from the Roman government until the burning of Rome and Nero begins the persecution. But notice where Jesus Christ is Lord attacks Rome. Because who else claimed to be Lord in Rome? Caesar. Worshipped as the god Jupiter. Worshipped as the greatest god of all. He is Lord. Kaiser Curios. Lord Caesar. You had to take a pinch of incense. You had to worship at the altar. You had to claim Caesar as Lord. And who is Lord? Jesus Christ is Lord. So what happens when Christianity clashes with civil government in about 30 years? Well, then we do what Nero did. We take those Christians who won't claim that, that Caesar is Lord, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and we will take them to the, um, was it the Parthenon? Where's that where the, they, had, they fed the Christians to the lions? That's not the Parthenon, is it? Colosseum. Thank you. I teach history on the side. You think I remember these things. All right to the Colosseum, and they would, they would feed the Christians to the lions. What did Nero do? Nero took Christians, impaled them on poles, covered them in oil, and lit them on fire to light up Rome. Why? Because either Jesus Christ is Lord over all, or Caesar is Lord over all. And who is the Lord? So don't miss the fact that though Jesus Christ came... And he came to, to deal with religion and Judaism. It's not just going to stay there. It's going to impact all of society. So what I see here is an order of priority. And it's an order of priority that's very important for us to see. The church of Jesus Christ does clash with Rome, but not yet. Not at first. So the first battle is not with civil government, but with religious government. The perversion of true religion. It's the predominant false religion of the day in Jerusalem. And what does this teach us? It teaches us what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 17. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Judgment begins in the household of God. 
And here we see the king coming in judgment on Judaism, and he goes right to the house of God, and he brings judgment to the rulers and to the whole system. And it's going to keep working itself out through the whole week. But it's bigger than that, because all brokenness is a result of sin. And once the king deals with sin on the cross, how are the results of sin throughout all of society in every part of the world dealt with? It's dealt with by those who have submitted themselves to the king through repentance and faith and are following him in all his ways in every area of life. So there is no lasting solution to all societal ills apart from repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. There is no lasting solution to all societal ills, civil government, uh, economics, health care, Work, whatever it might be. There are no lasting solutions apart from repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because the Bible says there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, period. In every area of life. If we're going to see any transformation anywhere, it's going to start with the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Where people will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what Christ teaches us as he enters Jerusalem. So if we, as Christians today, look to false gods for salvation, we will be devastatingly disappointed. So of course we don't turn to Islam. Of course we don't turn to Mormonism. Of course we don't turn to Hinduism and Buddhism. Those are false religions with false gods. They'll never help us, will they? We don't turn to paganism. We don't put up totem poles and light candles to our dead relatives. We don't worship the animals and nature, do we, for salvation? No. But here's one area where Christians have missed it. We've missed it in the area of secularism. If we look to secular solutions for salvation, we will get the same results as in looking to false gods. And why is that? Because secularism is a false god. The worship of mankind is a false God. Therefore, secular civil government is a false savior because secularism is a false God. And false gods give us false saviors. They give us false sins, false righteousness, false laws. Doug Wilson puts it this way. Secularism is a religious faith with all the accoutrements. They have priests. They have high priests. They have catechisms. They have sacrifices. They have temples. They have an index of prohibited books. They have commandments, very strict commandments. They have holiness codes. They have forbidden foods. In fact, they have everything but forgiveness. And that is because they don't have Christ. How could they have Christ when they won't turn to him? But when God grants us a true reformation, it will happen then. So America's greatest evil is rebellion against the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we have rejected the one true God and accepted false gods. Therefore, worship of the one true God is the center point of societal restoration. The worship of the one true God is the center point of societal restoration. The only hope for our society, the only hope for our nation is found in Jesus Christ. Salvation will begin where judgment begins in the household of God. And what is the household of God now? You are the household of God. 
You are the temple of the living God. You are the pillar and ground of the truth. You are the body of Christ. And if anything is going to change, in a sense, as we think about it, if anything is going to change out there, where is it going to change first? In here. If Jesus Christ were to show up to bring revival to the United States of America, where's the first place he would go? He'd walk in here. He wouldn't go to the White House. He wouldn't go to, the, to, 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 <laughs> to Lansing. He wouldn't, go, he wouldn't go, he'd go here. This is where he'd start, and this is where he starts. Because worship of the one true God is the center point of all transformation. Revival must take place here. This is what Jesus is teaching us. It will have an impact on every area of life flowing out. So what must we do? We must repent. True Christians in true churches must repent. We must repent. For far too long, true Christians, true believers, have looked to false gods and false saviors. And we are amazed at every time they fail us. But we should not be amazed. And we must not do it any longer. So what must we do? In conclusion, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, recognize that Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. And welcome him as your king. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ. If you are a Christian, understand the supreme authority of Jesus Christ over all earthly authority. And then recognize his order of priority in building his kingdom. What's the order of priority? Judgment begins at the household of God. Therefore, Christians, what must we do? We must repent. What are your individual secret sins? Where have you failed to obey God? In your life, in your family, in your homes. Where have we as a church failed? Where have we sinned? What have we failed to do? We must repent. We can look at all the ills of society, all the problems in government, all the challenges we face, and look for saviors. But Jesus Christ alone is the only one who can save us because we must be saved from ourselves, from our sin. Father, this is your word. Help us to wrestle with it. Help us to understand the societal implications of the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. All authority in heaven and on earth given to him how that plays out, what that looks like in every sphere of society, in every part of the world that you have made, in every part of the world that you rule and reign in. And may we as your people repent of our sin. May we turn all of our hope and all of our faith onto Jesus Christ alone. And may we, without apology, preach the truth that Jesus Christ is the only Savior from every ill every part of brokenness so that the world can hear that their only hope is Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone listening who does not yet have Christ as Lord, may they today recognize and turn and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.